0: Hello my darling, and welcome to today's story time. Today we are reading Shadow Over Innsmouth by HP Lovecraft and now on with our story time Chapter one During the Winter of nineteen twenty seven to nineteen twenty eight Officials of the Federal Government made a strange and secret investigation of certain conditions in the ancient Massachusetts seaport of Innsmouth. The public first learned of this in February, when a vast series of raids and arrests occurred, followed by the deliberate burning and dynamiting, under suitable precautions, of an enormous number of crumbling, worm-eaten, and supposedly empty houses along the abandoned waterfront. Uninquiring souls let this occurrence pass as one of the major clashes in the spasmodic war on liquor. Keener news followers, however, wondered at the prodigious number of arrests, the abnormally large force of men used in making them, and the secrecy surrounding the disposal of the prisoners. No trials or even definite charges were reported, nor were any of the captives seen thereafter in the regular galleys of the nation. There were vague statements about disease in concentration camps, and later about dispersal in various naval and military prisons, but nothing positive ever developed. Innsmouth itself was left almost depopulated, and is even now only beginning to show signs of a sluggishly revived existence. Complaints from many liberal organizations were met with long confidential discussions, and representatives were taken on trips to certain camps and prisons. As a result, these societies became surprisingly passive and reticent. Newspaper men were harder to manage, but seemed largely to cooperate with the government In the end, only one paper, a tabloid always discounted because of its wild policy, mentioned the deep-diving submarine that discharged torpedoes downward in the marine abyss just beyond Devil Reef. That item, gathered by chance in a haunt of sailors, seemed indeed rather far-fetched, since the low, black reef lies a full mile and a half away from Innsmouth Harbor. People around the country and in the nearby towns muttered a great deal among themselves, but said very little to the outside world. They had talked about dying and half deserted Innsmouth for nearly a century, and nothing new could be wilder or more hideous than what they had whispered and hinted years before. Many things had taught them secretiveness, and there was now no need to exert pressure on them. Besides, they really knew very little, for wide salt marshes, desolate and unpeopled, keep neighbors off of Innsmouth on the landward side. But at last, I'm going to defy the ban on speech about this thing. Results, I am certain." are so thorough that a public harm, save a shock of repulsion, could ever accrue from a hinting of what was found by those horrified raiders at Innsmouth. Besides, what was found might possibly have more than one explanation. I do not know just how much of a whole tale has even been told to me, and I have many reasons for not wishing to probe deeper. For my contact with this affair has been closer than that of any other layman, and I have carried away impressions which are yet to drive me to drastic measures. It was I who fled frantically out of Innsmouth in the early morning hours of July 16, 1927, and whose frightened appeals for government inquiry and action brought on the whole reported episode. I was willing enough to stay mute while the affair was fresh and uncertain, but now that it is an old story with public interest and curiosity gone, I have an odd craving to whisper about those frightful hours in that ill-rumored and evilly shadowed seaport of death and blasphemous abnormality. The mere telling helps me to restore confidence in my own faculties, to reassure myself that I was not simply the first to succumb to a contagious nightmare hallucination. It helps me, too, in making up my mind regarding a certain terrible step which lies ahead of me. I never heard of Innsmouth until the day before I saw it, for the first and, so far, last time. I was celebrating my coming of age by a tour of New England, sightseeing Antiquarian and genealogical, and had planned to go directly from ancient Newburyport to Arkham, whence my mother's family was derived. I had no car, but was traveling by train, trolley, and motor coach, always seeking the cheapest possible route. In Newburyport, they told me that the steam train was the thing to take to Arkham, and it was only at the station ticket office when I demurred at the high fare, that I learned about insmouth The stout, shrewd-faced agent, whose speech showed him to be no local man, seemed sympathetic towards my efforts at economy, and he made a suggestion that none of my other informants had offered. You could take that old bus, I suppose, he said with a certain hesitation, but it ain't thought much of hereabouts. It goes through Innsmouth, you may have heard about that, and so the people don't like it. Run by an insmouth fellow, Joe Sargent, but never gets any custom from here, or Arkham either, I guess. Wonder it keeps running at all. I suppose it's cheap enough, but I never see more than two or three people in it. Nobody but those Innsmouth folks. Leaves the square, front of Hammond's drugstore, at 10 a.m., and 7 p.m., unless they've changed lately. Looks like a terrible rattletrap. I've never been on it. That was the first I ever heard of Shadowed In's Mouth. Any reference to a town not shown on common mats or listed in recent guidebooks would have interested me. And the agent's odd manner of illusion roused something like real curiosity. A town able to inspire such dislike in its neighbors, I thought, must at least be rather unusual, and worthy of a tourist's attention. If it came before Arkham, I would stop off there, and so I asked the agent to tell me something about it. He was very deliberate, and spoke with an air of feeling slightly superior to what he said. ins mouth, well... It's a strange kind of town. It's down at the mouth of the Manuext. It used to be almost a city, quite a port before the War of 1812, but all gone to pieces in the last hundred years or so. No railroad now. B and M never went through. And the branch line from Raleigh was given up years ago. More empty houses than there are people, I guess and no business to speak of except fishing and lobstering. Everybody trades mostly here in Arkham or Ipswich. Once they had quite a few mills, but nothing's left now except one gold refinery running on the leanest kind of part-time. That refinery, though, used to be a big thing, and old man Marsh, who owns it, must be richer in croesus, strange old duck, though, and sticks mighty close in his home. He's supposed to have developed some skin disease or deformity late in life that makes him keep out of sight, grandson of Captain Obed Marsh, who founded the business. His mother seems to have been some kind of foreigner, they say a South Sea Islander, so everybody raised Cain when he married an Ipswich girl 50 years ago. They always do that about Innsmouth people, and folks here and hereabouts always try to cover up any Innsmouth blood they have in them. But Marsh's children and grandchildren look just like everyone else's so far as I can see. I've had them pointed out to me here, though, come to think of it. The elder children don't seem to be around lately. Never saw the old man. And why is everybody so down on Innsmouth? Well, young fellow, you mustn't take too much stock in what people around here say. They're hard to get started, but once they do get started, they never let up. They've been telling me things about Innsmouth, whispering, and mostly, for the last hundred years, I guess, and I gather they're more scared than anything else. Some of the stories would make you laugh, about old Captain Marsh driving bargains with the devil, and bringing imps out of hell to live in mouth, Or about some kind of devil worship, and awful sacrifices in some places near the wharves that people stumbled on around 1845. But I come from Panton, Vermont, and that kind of story don't go down with me. You ought to hear, though, what some of the old-timers tell about the Black Reef off the coast, Devil Reef, they call it. It's well above water a good part of the time, and never much below it, but at that you can hardly call it an island. The story is that there's a whole legion of devils seen sometimes on the reef, sprawled about, or darting in and out of some kind of caves near the top. It's a rugged, uneven thing, a good bit over a mile out and toward the end of shipping days, sailors used to make big detours just to avoid it. That is, sailors that don't hail from Innsmouth. One of the things they had against old Captain Marsh was that he was supposed to land on it sometimes at night, when the tide was right. Maybe he did, for I dare say the rock formation was interesting, and it's just barely possible He was looking for pirate loot, and maybe finding it. But there was talk of his dealing with demons there. The fact is, I guess on the whole, it was really the captain that gave the bad reputation to the wreath. That was before the big epidemic of 1846, when over half the folks in Innsmouth were carried off. They never did quite figure out what the trouble was but it was probably some foreign kind of disease brought from China, or somewhere by the shipping. It surely was bad enough. There were riots over it, and all sorts of ghastly doings that I don't believe ever got outside of town, and it left the place in awful shape. Never came back. There can't be more than three or four hundred people living there now. But the real thing behind the way folks feel is simply racial prejudice. and I don't say I'm blaming those who hold it. I hate those Innsmouth folks myself, and I wouldn't care to go to their town. I suppose you know, though I can see you're a westerner by your talk. Well, there must be something like that back of the Innsmouth people. The place was always badly cut off from the rest of the country by marshes and creeks, and we can't be sure about the ins and outs of the matter. But... It's pretty clear that old Captain Marsh must have brought home some odd specimens when he had all three of his ships in commission back in the 20s and 30s. There certainly is a strange kind of streak in the Innsmouth folks today. I don't know how to explain it, but it sort of makes you crawl. You'll notice a little in Sergeant if you take his bus, airy eyes that never seem to shut. Skin isn't quite right, rough and scabby. The sides of their necks are all shriveled or creased up. It bald, too, very young. The older fellows look the worst. Fact is, I don't believe I've ever seen an old chap of that kind. Guess they must die of looking in the glass. Animals hate them. They used to have lots of horse trouble before autos came in. Nobody around here, or in Arkham or Ipswich, will have anything to do with them. And they act kind of offish themselves when they come to town, or when anyone tries to fish on their grounds. Strange how fish are always thick off Innsmouth Harbor, when it ain't anywhere else around. But just try to fish there yourself, and see how the folks chase you off those people used to come here on the railroad, walking and taking the train at Raleigh after the branch was dropped, but now they use the bus. Yes, there's a hotel in Innsmouth called the Gilman House, but I don't believe it can amount to much. I wouldn't advise you to try it. Better stay over here and take the 10 o'clock bus tomorrow morning. Then you can get an evening bus there for Arkham at 8 o'clock. There was a factory inspector who stopped at the Gilman a couple of years ago, and he had a lot of unpleasant hints about the place. Seems they get a strange crowd there, for this fellow heard voices in other rooms, though most of them were empty, and they gave him the shivers. It was a different language, he thought, but he said the bad thing about it was the kind of voice that sometimes spoke. It sounded so unnatural, sloping like he said, but he didn't dare undress and go to sleep. Just waited up and lit out the first thing in the morning. The talk went on most all night. This fellow, Casey, his name was, had a lot to say about how the Innsmouth folks watched him and seemed kind of on guard. He found the Marsh Refinery a strange place. It's an old mill on the lower falls of the Manuets. What he said tallied up with what I'd heard. Books in bad shape, and no clear account of any kind of dealings. You know, it's always been a mystery where the Marshes get the gold they refine. They've never seemed to do much buying into that line, but years ago, they shipped out an enormous lot of ingots. there used to be talk of a strange kind of jewelry that the sailors and refinery men sometimes sold on the sly, or that was seen once or twice on some of the marsh women folk. People thought maybe old Captain Obed traded for it in some port, especially since he was always ordering stacks of glass beads and trinkets, such as seafaring men used to trade in the native lands. Others thought, and still think, that he'd found an old pirate cache out on Devil Reef. But here's the funny thing. The old captain's been dead these 60 years, and there ain't been a good-sized ship out of that place since the Civil War. But just the same, the marshes still keep on buying a few of those native trades, mostly glass and rubber, they tell me. But that plague of 46 must have taken off the best blood in the place. Anyway, they're a doubtful lot now, and the marshes and the rich folk are as bad as any. As I told you, there probably ain't more than 400 people in the whole town, in spite of all the streets they say there are. Although they're lawless and sly, and full of secret doings, they get a lot of fish and lobsters and do exporting by truck. Strange how the fish swarm right there, and nowhere else. No one can keep track of these people, and state school officials and census men have a devil of a time. You can bet that prying strangers aren't welcome around in I've heard personally of more than one business or government man that's disappeared there, and there's loose talk of one who went crazy and is out at Danvers now. They must have fixed up some awful scare for that fellow. That's why. I wouldn't go at night if I was you. I've never been there and have no wish to go, but I guess a daytime trip couldn't hurt you, even though the people hereabouts will advise you not to make it. If you're just sightseeing and looking for old time stuff, Innsmouth ought to be quite a place for you. And so, I spent part of that evening at the Newburyport Library looking up data about Innsmouth. When I tried to question the people in the shops, the lunchroom, the garages, and the fire station, I had found them even harder to get started than the ticket agent had predicted, and I realized that I could not spare the time to overcome their first instinctive reticentness. They had a kind of obscure suspiciousness, as if there were something amiss with anyone too much interested in Innsmouth. At the YMCA, where I was stopping, the clerk merely discouraged my going to a such dismal, decadent place, and the people in the library showed much the same attitude. Clearly, in the eyes of the educated, Innsmouth was merely an exaggerated case of civic degeneration. The Essex County histories on the library shelves had very little to say, except that the town was founded in 1643, noted for shipbuilding before the Revolution, a seat of great marine prosperity in the early 19th century, and later, a minor factory center using the Manuext as power. The epidemic and riots of 1846 were very sparsely treated as if they formed a discredit to the county. References to decline were few, though the significance of the later record was unmistakable. After the Civil War, all industrial life was confined to the Marsh Refining Company, and the marketing of gold ingots formed the only remaining bit of major commerce aside from the eternal fishing. That fishing paid less and less, as the price of the commodity fell, and large-scale corporations offered competition. But there was never a dearth of fish around Innsmouth Harbor. Foreigners seldom settled there, and there was some discreetly veiled evidence that a number of people who had tried it had been scattered in a peculiarly drastic fashion. Most interesting of all, was a glancing reference to the strange jewelry vaguely associated with Innsmouth. It had evidently impressed the whole countryside more than a little. For mention was made of specimens in the Museum of Miskatonic University at Arkham, and in the display room of the Newburyport Historical Society. The fragmentary descriptions of these things were bald and prosaic, they hinted to me an undercurrent of persistent strangeness. Something about them seemed so odd and provocative that I could not put them out of my mind, and, despite the relative lateness of the hour, I resolved to see the local sample, said to be a large, strange proportioned thing, evidently meant for a tiara, if it could possibly be arranged. The librarian gave me a note of introduction to the curator of the society, a Miss Anna Tilton, who lived nearby, and after a brief explanation, that ancient gentlewoman was kind enough to pilot me into the closed building, since the hour was not outrageously late. The collection was a notable one indeed, but in my present mood, I had eyes for nothing but the bizarre object glistened in a corner cupboard under the electric lights. It took no excessive sensitiveness to beauty to make me literally gasp at the strange, unearthly splendor of the alien, opulent fantasy. It rested there on a purple velvet cushion. Even now, I can hardly describe what I saw, though it was clearly enough a sort of tiara as the description had said. It was tall in front, and with a very large and curiously irregular periphery. As if designed for a head of almost freakishly elliptical outlines, the material seemed to be predominantly gold, though a weird, lighter lustrousness hinted at some strange alloy of an equally beautiful and scarcely identifiable metal. Its condition was almost perfect, and one could have spent hours in studying the striking and puzzlingly untraditional designs. Some simply geometrical, and some plainly marine, chased or molded in high relief on its surface, yet a craftsmanship of incredible skill and grace. The longer I looked, the more the thing fascinated me, and in this fascination there was a curiously disturbing element hardly to be classified or accounted for. At first, I decided that it was the strange, otherworldly quality of the art which made me uneasy. All other art objects I had ever seen either belonged to some known racial or national stream, or else were consciously modernistic defiances of every recognized stream. This tiara was neither. It clearly belonged to some subtle technique of infinite maturity and perfection, yet that technique was utterly remote from any eastern or western, ancient or modern, which I had ever heard or seen exemplified. It was as if the worksmanship were that of another planet. However, I soon saw that my uneasiness at a second and perhaps equally potent source residing in the pictorial and mathematical suggestions of the strange designs. The patterns all hinted of remote secrets and unimaginable abysses in time and space, and the monotonously aquatic nature of the reliefs became almost sinister. Among these reliefs were fabulous monsters of abhorrent grotesqueness and malignity, half ichthyic and half Patrachian, in suggestion, which one could not dissociate from certain haunting and uncomfortable sense of pseudo-memory, as if they called up some image from deep cells and tissues whose retentive functions are wholly primal and awesomely ancestral. At times I fancied that every contour of these blasphemous fish frogs was overflowing with the ultimate quintessence of unknown and inhuman evil. In odd contrast to the tiara's aspect was its brief and prosy history as related by Miss Tilton. It had been pawned for ridiculous sum at a shop in State Street in 1873. It was a drunken insmouth man, shortly afterward killed in a brawl, the society had acquired it directly from the pawnbroker, at once giving it a display worthy of its quality. It was labelled as of probable East Indian or Indo Chinese provenance, though the attribution was frankly tentative. Miss Tilton, comparing all possible hypotheses regarding its origin and its presence in New England, was inclined to believe that it formed part of some exotic pirate hoard discovered by old Captain Obed Marsh. This view was surely not weakened by the insistent offers of purchase at a high price, which the Marshes began to make as soon as they knew of its presence, and which they repeated to this day, despite the society's unvarying determination not to sell. As the good lady showed me out of the building— she made it clear that the pirate theory of the Marsh fortune was a popular one among the intelligent people of the region her own attitude towards shadowed innsmouth which she had never seen was one of disgust at a community slipping far down the cultural scale and she assured me that the rumors of devil worship were partly justified by a particular secret cult which had gained force there and engulfed all of the Orthodox churches. It was called, she said, the Esoteric Order of Dagon, and was undoubtedly a debased, quasi-pagan thing imported from the East a century before, at a time when the Innsmouth fisheries seemed to be going barren. Its persistence among a simple people was quite natural in view of the sudden and permanent return of abundantly fine fishing, and it soon came to be the greatest influence on the town, replacing Freemasonry altogether, and taking up headquarters in the old Masonic Hall on the new Church Green. All this, to the pious Miss Tilton, formed an excellent reason for shunning the ancient town of decay and desolation, but to me, it was merely a fresh incentive To my architectural and historical anticipations was now added an acute anthropological zeal, and I could scarcely sleep in my small room at the Y, as the night wore away. And this, my darling, ends our story time for today. As always, I hope that you have very sweet and creepy dreams. Good night.